Holy Spirit, when you moved John to write, to pour out his heart and his soul about his time with your son, with the son, you 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 moved him to write some things that sometimes are hard to read. May we read with ears attuned to your voice. And Jesus, as we come to you in the Holy Spirit to hear, to know, to be transformed, to, know, to, um, to walk with you, may we see you. May these written words show us who you are, the living word. And Father, the glory that you gave to the Son. He gave and poured out upon the church that we might give glory back to you. May we lift up not only our voices and our hands, but our hearts and our minds for your praise, for your honor. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we come to you to hear from you to know you, to journey with you, to live in your light. Humble us before your word. Call us to rise that we might go into the world and be your church. We pray this, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. John chapter 18. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about three people. This week we're going to talk about Judas Iscariot. Next week we're going to talk about Simon Peter. And the week after that, which is Palm Sunday, we're going to be talking about Pontius Pilate. We have just come through a, a huge section, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, where Jesus is talking. We've heard his voice. And now we come to the responses to what he's saying. And one of the most fascinating things, I think for me anyway, as, I, as I'm reading the, the, the Gospels, and as you engage in the Gospels, is to think about the people that God used to write these words. Now we believe, um, at Bedford Road, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Uh, the Greek word is literally breathed by God, that, that the word, the scriptures were, were breathed by God. And the authors were somehow filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they wrote the words that God wanted them to write. And that the community of faith, uh, the believers, the disciples, the apostles, and the church recognized that to be the word of God. But that does not mean that it is stripped of all of the personality and character of the authors. And when we look at the four gospel writers... We have Matthew, or Levi, who was one of Jesus' disciples. But, and we have John, who was one of Jesus' disciples. And then we have Mark and Luke, and neither of them were personal disciples of Jesus. Uh, both of them worked with the apostles. Mark worked with uh, Simon Peter, Luke works with Paul, and they uh, seem to record the gospel as they presented it. But when we look at Matthew and John, we see people who knew the people involved in the, in the narrative. 
And you can kind of see their personality come out in the way that they describe those people. And something struck me about the way John tells us about Judas. And I want, to keep, I want you to keep your eyes open. Because if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard about Judas Iscariot. You, you know the story. Even if you, even if you uh, don't super know it, everybody knows who Judas Iscariot is. I want you to follow along in, in chapter 18 and see what's missing in John's telling. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the, the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. What's missing? The kiss. We all know Judas's kiss, right? Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. He says to the, to the high priest and the captains, the soldiers, he says, the one that I kiss. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, the one that I kiss, that's the one. But John doesn't include that. Not only does he not include, it, include that, he also doesn't include the statement that Jesus makes at the end in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of this confrontation. Jesus says, I was in the temple day after day teaching, and you didn't grab me then. Why are you coming to me at night? He takes that out. And what's the significance of all of that? Well, let's think about what John puts in. Rather than having Judas bringing this mob to the garden and then saying, the one that I kiss, that's Jesus. John says, well, Jesus, he, he went ahead and identified himself. He said, I'm Jesus. They said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Now, this is, this is little and it's nuanced and it's, it's weird. But you notice that the first time that happens, right, um, he says to them in verse 4, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And look at this little parenthetical statement that, that John inserts. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. Got to wonder whether Judas was one of the ones that fell back to the ground or if he stayed standing. Because he already knew who Jesus was. 
he, uh, among other things, he adds that conversation there. Um, he includes the name of the guy that Simon Peter cuts his ear off. None of the other Gospels include that. Um, now, I have a theory about that. I'm glad you asked. Um, I think that John knew this guy, and that's why he knows his name. He knows his name is Malchus. We find out later that John is known to the household of the chief priest. Um, and then the very end, he includes a statement that the other gospels don't have. In verse 11, he says to, to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, um, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Now that's interesting because the other gospels record Jesus praying to the father in the garden of Gethsemane, asking that the cup that the father had given him, if it was possible that he could, he could not drink of it. But John doesn't include that. Instead, John puts this at the end. He says, just so you know, the reason that Jesus goes um, to the trial is because the Father has appointed it. It's the cup that the Father is going to drink. Now, when we, when we read about Judas Iscariot, we are so used to seeing Judas Iscariot in the worst possible light. He's the villain of the story. He's, he's the... Villain. Now, John does not have a high opinion of, John, of Judas Iscariot. Um, he refers to him in chapter 12 as, straight out, a thief. He just refers to him as a thief. He has Jesus refer to John as, or Judas as uh, not clean in chapter 13. So he doesn't have a high opinion of Judas. And yet... John takes out that very intimate detail of Judas identifying Jesus, betraying Jesus with the kiss. And and as I as I looked at this, I said, "How are we gonna How are we gonna go through this?" I I, I think John is still grieving over his friend Judas. I think John, now an old man, decades later, still looks back with sorrow that one of the twelve could do something so despicable. And for whatever reason, John chooses to let us um, read the narrative, and I'm not saying he changes the story, so don't take it wrong. He reports what actually happened. But the other gospel writers leave out Jesus' conversation here, this whole I am he thing. John includes it, and I think John includes it to make sure we understand Jesus wasn't crucified because Judas was the villain. Jesus was crucified because Jesus was the Christ. And that's an important distinction that I think John wants us to see. That this is not a matter of the bad guy having his moment. Of the devil, who Jude, John actually says in, Jude, in John 13 too, he says that the devil had put this into the heart of Judas. But John is not going to let the devil get the praise. John is not going to open a door to the idea that Jesus wasn't in control when he was marching to the cross. John wants us to understand without a doubt, 
And this should color the way we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke because the reason we have four Gospels is for us to see the whole picture and not get focused on any one thing. John wants us to understand Jesus knows what he's doing. Now, Luke does it a little bit different. Luke says, uh, Luke records Jesus talking about he could call down angels if he wanted to to free him, but that's not what he's going to do. Judas, in, in a lot of ways, and the word Judas, all right, if you're ever reading your Bible, just so you know, Judas and Judah and Judea are all the same word. Um, in Hebrew, they're all the same word. In Greek, Judeos, they're all the same word. Um, the reason that you get Judah, a Jude is also the same name. So Jude, Judas, Judah, Judea, they're all Yehud, all right? They're all the same name. But in our English Bibles, uh, they differentiate Judah and Jude from Judas. Judas is the one who's the betrayer, right? But Judas stands in for the betrayal of all, I think, who seek Christ on their own terms and for their own purposes. See, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah, but it was the Messiah they wanted who was going to do what they thought they needed it was the Messiah that was going to fix the problems that they thought were the issue. Um, it was the, the solution. They, they had the solution already in their minds for the problems of the world. How many of you have ever tried to help someone who has already come up with the solution to the problem they can't fix? You ever had this conversation? Um, because I get sucked into doing tech support for people, I wind up having this conversation a lot. My phone won't do fill in the blank. Okay, well, let me take a look at it. Well, I pushed this button 18 times. Well, clearly that's not the problem. We know the button works. There must be a bigger issue. Um, well, I think it might be this. Will you please let me do this? I'm capable of doing this. Uh, this week, this week, by the way, um, I did the impossible and replaced a battery in an iPhone. Yeah, that's right. I'm that good. <laughs> then I thought I was done. My wife can tell you. I thought I was done and I cleaned up all my stuff and I had two screws left. I knew where they went. They were the last screws to put in. I had done all the steps, but I forgot that I hadn't put them in, and I took the piece of paper they were on, and I stuffed it with everything else, and those two little 1.3 millimeter screws that were fastened by a wide quadruple knot screwdriver, which I own, um, went flying up in the air and disappeared who knows where. Fortunately, I have other phones. I just took the screws out of another one. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and so I'm doing, you know, you do tech support for somebody and you're like, okay, so what's the first question you should always ask if somebody, somebody says this isn't working? Did you turn it off and turn it back on? All right, that's always the first question. I'm like, no, oh, yeah, I did that. I did that. I did. No, 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 no. Not did you turn the screen off? Did you turn the whole thing off? No, that can't be it. 
It's like, yeah, because that's computers, millions and millions of lines of code never get messed up, right? Couldn't be the problem. Some, so often we deal with these situations where we already have in our mind a solution to our problem and we're just waiting for God to do the thing we already know is the answer. And in some ways, I think Judas was like this when he came to Jesus. Now, we don't know the story of how Judas came. We, we know the story about Simon and Peter. In fact, Simon Peter, we've got a couple of stories that go on with him. Um, it seems like it took a couple tries before Simon Peter actually started following Jesus all the way, um, which doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, but, um, but we don't know how it is that Judas comes to, uh, comes to follow Jesus. We know very little about him. And, and all the gospel writers color our, our opinion of them from the very first time he appears. Because the first time he appears, it's he's the one who's going to betray Jesus. I mean, he's, he's on the list. This, by the way, is not an uncommon thing in Jewish, the way a, a, a Jewish story would be told in the first century. Um, if you've ever heard the telling of, of the book of Esther, which is the book that we're going to be studying after this, um, the book of Esther, when it's told in Purim um, during, the, during the Hebrew liturgical calendar, there is a, a character in Esther, Haman, who is the bad guy. He is the villain. There's no redeeming quality for him. And when the story is told during the Feast of Purim, children are taught to hiss every time his voice comes, his name comes up. They say, and then Haman, the whole time. Right? We, but what, the way we tell a story colors the way we see it. And, and, and the gospel writers, they write from the beginning. Judas is, a, is the betrayer. There's no mystery. There's no swerve. There's no twist in the story. M. Night Shyamalan did not mess with this story. This is the way that it goes. This is how it goes. We don't know anything about him except that he betrays Jesus. And yet John steps back. And again, I think that Judas stands in. See, what's interesting about Jesus' prayers, right? We read through the prayers, that whole high priestly prayer thing. We read through his discourse and the prayers and everything in the previous couple of chapters. The thing that he keeps saying is that his disciples have received his word, that they, they believe, that they've been faithful. He keeps saying that. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. But when we get to the disciples at the beginning, they're not at that point. It takes work for them to get to that point of belief. It gets work. It takes work for them to get to the point of understanding what Jesus was doing when he was washing their feet. It gets work. It takes work for them to understand the idea of the resurrection, and it takes work for them to understand what he does with Lazarus when he raises from the dead. And it seems like all the other eleven, as, although they're stumbling and bumbling and working their way, they're moving more and more toward Christ. They're following Jesus, but Judas seems to stay right over here. As the the disciples move, Judas stays the same. He doesn't change. Uh, Again, going back to chapter 6 and verse verse 64, John actually says, Jesus says something at one point, for those who do not believe, and he says he's talking about the betrayer. He's talking about about Judas. In chapter 12, when, when John refers to him as a thief, it's like, it's almost as if it's almost as if we all know this about him. He hasn't changed. It seems like Judas was so focused on what Jesus was going to provide to him 
the Messiah that he was going to be, that Judas didn't feel the need to really follow Jesus. He thought Jesus was going to meet him, was going to come to him, was going to meet him. He lived in a a Judas-centered world. And he had a Judas-centered faith. And when Jesus kept going toward the cross, well, obviously I got to get him to turn around. Got to get him to change. I think Judas was a well-intentioned dragon. I think he thought that if he betrayed Jesus, it would force Jesus' hand and Jesus would have to become the Messiah that he wanted him to be. He would have to step up and do what Judas wanted him to do. To fight the Romans, to do the thing, whatever it was. And the truth of the matter is that we all start at a selfish place when we come to Christ. We all start at ground zero. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a pastor's home like I was. Or you were raised in a complete heathen home like some of you were, we all start at ground zero when we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus for the most part out of selfish motivation. Either we don't want to go to hell, and and so we come to Jesus, repent of our sins, and ask for forgiveness because we don't want to go to hell, we want to go to heaven. Or we're at the bottom of the barrel. We've gone through every other option in the world and we turn to God in desperation and say, please, I've tried everything. I'm at a loss. Or we're religious people and the religion is just resonating hollowly, uh, hollow, and then somebody says to you, well, what about a real relationship with Jesus? Maybe that would do something for you. We, We... We tend to come to Jesus for selfish reasons at the beginning. We come to church because we want our kids to be involved in something. We want them to get a little religion in them. They've already got the rebellion and sin. They might as well have some religion. Uh, We come to church because we think it's going to give us something. It's going to provide us from. We we come to church because somebody just pestered us and bugged us. We come to church because we're curious. We we listen to the message and then somewhere along the line something happens and we, in our own motivation, we we come because there's something about Jesus that we need. But over time, as followers of Christ, we should be moving like the disciples were, as Jesus is at work in our lives, there's a progression, there's a transformation, there's, there's a movement, there's a, a glory. We, we learn to worship, we learn to pray, we learn to read the scriptures, we, we learn to be better um, husbands and wives because we look to Christ and we look to the scriptures. We, we learn what it means to be a sinner. We learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. We, meet, we learn what the church is, what Christians are, what theologists. We start to get deeper and richer in our faith. We grow and we move and we're transformed so often when we come to Judas the question that we ask ourselves is would I have betrayed Jesus like Judas did and I would actually ask you to think of a different question And the question I would ask is, am I moving with Jesus? 
or am I standing still? Judas's problem, I don't think Judas' problem really was that he was an awful, terrible person. I, I find it hard to believe that Jesus would have brought him into the disciples in the first place if he'd been a horrible, awful person. And I find it really hard to believe that he would have hung out with Jesus for three years if Judas was a horrible, evil, nasty, terrible person. A movie villain. Jafar from Aladdin. Very obviously the bad guy, right? You know, by the way, the best way to determine who is the bad guy in a mystery movie? Do you guys know this? You want to know? They're using an Android phone. Apple does not allow Apple does not allow their phones to be used by the villain in movies and TV. So if you see someone, you see somebody using an Apple phone even if they appear to be a bad guy, they're going to wind up being a good guy or at the least neutral. That's a surefire way to predict the storyline. Um, it's true. Uh, it is true. You can get a little bendy with it, but for the most part, that's how it works. Um, uh, usually, that's why most people use generic phones. You can't tell what kind of phone they're using. Um, but when it comes to the disciples, right, how different did Judas look to the other 11? He must have been pretty much the same. The same fumbles, the same mistakes, the same needs and everything at the beginning. But by the end, they've moved on. Now, they haven't moved on as far as Jesus wants them to move. There's a lot more they've got to do. But Judas is still behind. And the question isn't, would I betray Jesus? The question is, am I I going with him? Am I journeying with him? Am I following him even with the cross looming in the presence? Am I willing to, to endure and to stick with him and to grow and mature Or am I just staying in one place? Because if your faith stays in one place, locks down, throws out the anchors, change yourself to the position, eventually you're going to get so far away from Jesus that you're going to be convinced he's wrong. And he needs to come back to me because I'm right. I really honestly believe that John is trying to give us a picture of Judas where we say, not that Judas is the villain, just that Judas refused to follow Jesus. And is he any different then from the rest of the people who start the journey with Jesus? And remember, John is writing to the second and third generation of believers the people that have all the right appearance, have all the right lines, uh, uh, dotted uh, I's and cross T's. At the beginning, they look great. Um, We all know this from experience. We drive around and and a church looks beautiful and magnificent. And then you get inside and there's no Jesus, no Holy Spirit, no Bible, but a whole lot of politics and nonsense. You, you, You meet somebody and you say, this person, or you start reading someone and you start saying, oh, this person, they're using all the right words, they're saying all the right stuff, and then something kind of starts to feel weird, and the more that you read them, the weirder they get, and before you're too long, you realize, I've got to choose either this person or Jesus. And I think that John wants us to understand That following Jesus, moving with him, 
going with him rather than looking and hoping that he supports our agenda. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now later on, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, Simon Peter will come to Jesus and basically say to him, what's the difference between me and Judas? Because Simon Peter betrayed Jesus. And Jesus' answer to him, now the question is implicit, but Jesus' answer to him will be to ask him, do you love me? Because what was Judas's problem? He loved the idea of Jesus. He loved the idea of a Messiah. He loved the idea of a miracle worker. He loved the idea, but he didn't love Jesus. And when Judas realizes the mistake he has made, what is his response? We know from the other gospel writers he is absolutely torn apart. He gives the he tries to give his money back to the priests. He tries to get Jesus off. He tries to get uh, get him off the hook of the the trial and all this stuff. He he does everything he can and when it doesn't happen he goes and he commits suicide. Peter's response to his failure is to weep. And when Jesus is raised from the dead to go after him. Every time by the way, this, this, I'll get into this, but Simon Peter, for all of his flaws, every time after the crucifixion, Simon Peter hears that Jesus might be raised from the dead, what does he do? Runs. As fast as he can to wherever Jesus is. He, he wants to do nothing but be with Jesus. Judas stood still. Disciples move with Christ. At Bedford Road, we create environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. This is not about standing still. It's not about being right. It's not about having all of the P's and Q's. It's about journeying with the one we love and who loves us. And the question I would ask you tonight, today is very simple. Are you enamored of the idea of Jesus? Or do you truly love Jesus? Are you um, excited about the prospect of what Jesus might do for you? Or are you willing to follow him no matter what he asks you to do for him? Those are two very different things. At the beginning, they look very similar. But in the end, they look very different. Hey, join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, we're here because of you. Even those of us that got dragged here. We want to know you. And we want others to know you. To love you to walk with you. Help us to be in the light, following you, being at, coming after you, seeking after you. Not content to sit around and wait for the Holy Spirit to somehow nudge us or move us, but to be actively endeavoring to know you.
to stay close to you. To lay down the things that hold us back so that we can move in faith. And Jesus, not everyone that comes and worships here has truly committed their hearts to you. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and that a belief in the heart might manifest in a confession of the mouth and we might celebrate as we follow you. We might celebrate with those who come to faith. Lord, we ask that you would transform those of us who are believers, disciples, Christians, who maybe we've gotten our feet a little stuck. We've allowed a little bit of the stand still and hope that Jesus shows up attitude into our lives. And we would run earnestly and passionately after you. Lord, may our prayer not be thank you that we that I don't betray you, but rather thank you that you have called us to walk with you. May you be the only one we honor and glorify. This is your church. You are our head. And we will go where you go. Jesus, we pray this in your name.